seven different times in the book of John, Jesus says, I am, followed by a little saying, I am the vine, you are the branches, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And these seven I am statements are not only seven different claims by Jesus to his divine authority and identity, but they actually reveal seven different aspects of that identity and authority. This is the second of Jesus's I am sayings in the book of John. I am the light of the world. Now, we could spend probably no less than six sermons trying to unpack what Jesus means and all of the implications for that I am statement in John chapter 8. What I'm going to try to do in this message and hopefully in a future chapel message is show how when Jesus says he is the light of the world, that he is claiming to be both the divine light of men and the divine life of men. That's in the phrase, divine light and divine life. But this morning, we're just going to focus on Jesus as divine light. So if you're taking notes this morning, when Jesus says that he is the light of the world, he is revealing that he himself is divine light. He is claiming to be God himself, the very essence of truth and authority. I'll say it again. When Jesus claims to be the light of the world, he is heralding, he is claiming to be the very essence of truth and authority, the exclusive arbiter of truth, the sole proprietor of authority, the only one who defines what truth is, the only ruler of the universe. And this morning, I want to help you to see that main point in the passage. It doesn't matter what I say up from this pulpit if you don't see it in the text. And more than that, it's not enough to just see it in the text. Jesus calls us to rejoice, to rejoice in the truth that he is the light of the world. I want you to receive divine light this morning. I want you to to bask your soul this morning in the divine light of the world, that it would enlighten your eyes and that you would joyfully accept his authority over your life. This is the great need of the world. 
This is the great need of the human heart to know truth, both intellectually, oh, but more experientially, to experientially receive Christ's reign and rule over your heart. And I want to unpack this main point really in two ways and then end with some implications. First, I want to look at the debate over Jesus' identity and authority, the debate. And secondly, I want us to look at how Jesus establishes his identity and authority. And then we're going to end by way of application by showing you from this passage how Jesus connects his very identity as the Word and indeed his words with the Word of God and make two implications for our lives. So first, the debate over Jesus' identity and authority. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 12, really picks up and is part two. It is a continuation of a debate that started back in chapter 7. And I want you to notice two things about this debate, about this disagreement that took place in chapter 7 and continues in chapter 8. First, notice the subject of the debate. That the subject is primarily about Jesus' identity, origin, and authority. We're going to see that over and over again, that those three themes come up over and over again. His identity in connection with his origin and what bearing that has on his authority. All of the questions in this passage surround identity, origin, authority. And as we're going to see with today, this subject always brings division. John 7, we read that when people heard him speaking, what he was saying, how he was saying it, they were both amazed and confused. He was saying things like in John 7, 37, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of him shall flow rivers of living water. And the result of him saying things like that is that on the one hand, some were amazed. They said, this is a prophet. But they said, this is a prophet. This is the Christ. And yet, others scratched their head and were confused. How can this be the Messiah? I thought he's from Nazareth. The Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah was to to come out of Bethlehem, Galilee. Do you hear it? Origin, identity, authority. But notice not just the subject of the division. Notice the individuals involved in the discussion and ultimately those who side against him. If you've been tracking through John chapter 6 and John chapter 7 and all the way into John chapter 8, and it will continue, 
The Pharisees have been following him around since John chapter 6, verse 2. And they have been spending all of this time carefully studying Jesus, listening carefully to his words, watching his every move, not in order to worship him, but to find fault in him, to see if there's any little thing that he says that contradicts something that he might have said previously, to catch him, and as verse 44 says, to ultimately to arrest him. The subject of this passage and the individuals following Jesus around in this passage, to our modern ears, not surprising in the least. Oh, how many parallels there are today. The same subject being discussed, the same kinds of individuals following Jesus around. Isn't it true that oftentimes the so-called experts, particularly in the scholarly world, who spend the most time studying about Jesus and things of religion are also the ones who spend the most energy trying to discredit Jesus, trying to debunk Christianity. Every November I go to the biggest academic conference in the world on religion, the Society of Biblical Literature and the American Academy of Religion. And just picture it, 10,000 different scholars, graduate students, people from all over the world who spend their lives nearly every waking hour studying religion. And many of them, New Testament scholars who follow Jesus around, carefully study the things that Jesus says in order not to worship him, but to discredit him to discredit the claims of the New Testament. They know their New Testaments inside and out. They could tell you things about the New Testament books, Second Temple Judaism, the first century, that would absolutely dazzle you. And they do it with every ounce of evangelistic zeal that they can muster to discredit Christianity, to arrest Christianity, to to bind Christianity in shackles that people might join them as they snicker at the truth claims of Scripture. Probably the most infamous or famous New Testament scholars is one of my former college professors, Bart Ehrman, who is, who is the head of the religious studies faculty at the University of North Carolina. Maybe you've read Ehrman's books or you've seen him on the History Channel or a documentary, usually around Christmas and Easter. They bring him on as a so-called expert to tell us all about Jesus. Several years ago, Ehrman wrote an entire book that addresses the subject of our passage this morning. 
How Jesus Became God is the title. How Jesus Became God, the exaltation of a Jewish preacher from Galilee. And listen to his central argument. Jesus was not originally considered to be God in any sense at all. And that he eventually became divine or his followers in some sense before him came to be thought as equal with God Almighty in an absolute sense. This point I stress was something in development. Jesus was not considered to be God. No, Ehrman says, this is legend. This is legend. It was a development. He was an ordinary man who eventually became divine in some sense and that eventually was exalted to a status of God in an absolute sense. And brothers, this isn't just on university campuses. Brothers and sisters, this isn't something that just exists in elite academia. If you talk, say, on an airplane to someone or make friends with your unbelieving neighbor and you ask them, who was Jesus? And and specifically, tell me this, was he the son of God? Was he God in the flesh? You will hear millions of people articulate. Well, no, that, that's just one of those legends that simple-minded folk who apparently would believe just about anything if it makes them feel good, believe. And this morning, I just, I just ask with you, blood earnest, how, how will you respond to that? I hope that you'll take that person, or those people, to John chapter 8, verse 12, and show them Jesus' origin, identity, and authority. And then I hope you'll show them how Jesus establishes that origin, identity, and authority. So, how Jesus establishes this. Let's look at how Jesus establishes his truth claim that he is the light of the world. The disagreement picks up in verse 12. And then Jesus spoke again. Notice Jesus' patience. He spoke again. He's willing to continue this discussion. Jesus spoke again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And this statement provokes a response from the Pharisees in verse 13. They say, you are bearing witness about yourself and therefore your testimony is not true. Now at this point, you need to stop and ask, why is, why is that there? Um, why is that the way that the Pharisees respond in verse 13. Where did that come from? Why why is that their response? When you read the Bible, do, do you wrestle with the difficult questions? When you preach, do you help your people wrestle with 
difficult questions and then help them to see answers to their questions in the text by the help of the Holy Spirit, enlightening their eyes. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And they say, you are bearing witness about yourself and your testimony. Well, it's not true. Why did they say that? Well, they're playing a little intellectual game with Jesus in order to catch him in his own words and show that he is self-contradicting himself. They are repeating word for word what Jesus said in John 5, 31. And they're saying, oh, see, you said, if I, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And here you are bearing witness about yourself. We don't need to listen to you, Jesus. See, while the Pharisees have been silently lurking in the background up until this point, following him around, not saying anything, this is actually the first time in John's gospel that they actually speak up. It's, it's almost as if they've been carefully waiting, don't want to speak too soon, but now we've really got some evidence. You're testifying about yourself. You have a single witness testimony, Jesus. Self-testifying evidence, Jesus, doesn't work in court. And here they're appealing to Old Testament texts like Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, and 19, verse 15, that state that the evidence of truthfulness has to be on multiple witnesses. And here's what's amazing. Don't miss this. Here's what's amazing. Jesus takes the Pharisees' detour and makes it and uses it to get to his ultimate destination. Or to say it another way, the supposed detour that they tried to lead him on about the validity of Jesus' testimony becomes the tour de force in establishing Jesus' identity. So notice how he responds, how he demonstrates his identity. First, he says two things. First, that he is not alone in testifying that he is the Son of God. He's not alone. Second, he needs no other testimony to prove that he is the Son of God. His identity as the Son of God is neither on the basis of his own authority nor needs any other authority. Or to state it positively, he has others testifying that he is the Son of God. And yet, his very identity as the Son of God is self-authenticating. Let's look at this. So first, he's not alone in testifying that he is the Son of God. And I'll just give it away here. He says the Father joins him in testifying that he is the Son of God. Let's understand the Pharisees' argument again. 
You're testifying about yourself. You need other people. You can't go into a courtroom with just your story versus another. You have single witness testimony. You need other reliable witnesses. And notice how he responds. He says, you want witnesses? And then no less than four times does he say, I've got a witness. Not a man, but God himself. You want two witnesses? Verse 16. It is not I alone who judge, but I am the capital F Father who sent me. You want two witnesses? Verse 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me. You want two witnesses? Verse 28. I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak As the Father has taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. You want two witnesses? Verse 38, I speak what I have seen with my Father. What an astonishing claim. God is my witness. The defense calls God the Father to my defense. What an incredible claim. He is not alone in testifying about himself. No, the Father testifies on his authority. But notice the second way he addresses their challenge. Second thing he says is, He needs no other testimony to prove that he is the Son of God. His identity as the Son of God is self-authenticating. If you thought the first point was amazing, the second is even more incredible. The parallels between Jesus' words in verse 12 and God's words in Exodus 3 are absolutely astonishing. You remember how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3 and used Moses as the very instrument of deliverance from his people? Moses turned aside his eyes and what did he see? But a burning bush burning brightly. And how does this burning bush identify itself? How does God identify himself? Remember chapter 3, verse 14. Moses asks, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What's his identity? Who is he? What What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. John 8, the burning bush, standing there right in front of them, saying, I am the light of the world. Jesus the Son of God, 
in all of his self-authenticating glory, burning before their eyes, testifying about himself. And this is why in verse 13, verse 14, he says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Why? He continues, because I know where I came from and where I am going. I existed before I was born and I will continue to exist for 10,000 ages of years. I need no other testimony to prove my identity. And yet, although the light of the world shines before them, Jesus says, they walk in darkness. They see, but they don't see. They see with merely human eyes. Notice their response in verse 19. All this talk about his father. They say, where is your father? The judging according to the flesh by human appearances. Verse 27 makes it explicit. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the father. In fact, verse 41, they take a shot at his earthly father. We're not children of sexual immorality, they say. They see, but they don't see. Burning brightly and yet blindness. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And they not follow him. They don't follow him. They walk in darkness. So we've looked at the debate over Jesus' identity and then how Jesus establishes his identity and authority. And now I want to show us just how incredibly applicable these words are for us who are in ministry and training for ministry. And I want to do this by showing you from this passage how Jesus connects his self-authenticating authority with his self-authenticating words, and indeed, the word. That for Jesus to accept him is to accept his words. To accept his words is to accept him. To reject his words is to reject him. To reject him is to reject his words. The verse 31, 37, 43, and 47. And see if you see the parallels. Reject Jesus, reject his word. 31. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples. You seek to kill me, verse 37, because my word has no place in you. Verse 43. Why do you not understand my speech? It is because you cannot hear my word. Verse 47. He that is of God hears God's word. The reason you hear them not, that is his words, is because you are not of God. Just as Jesus reveals himself as the self-authenticating determiner of truth and authority, so his word is divine and supernatural Light. It is the word of God. You know it when you see it. 
Throughout the Bible, God's word is referred to as light. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then probably most poignantly, 2 Corinthians 4, 2 through 6, which refers to the word of God as the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ that shines, verse 6, For the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus shines forth. His word shines forth. So in light of this, I just want to lay out two final implications of this glorious truth. Two encouragements, two challenges in light of this glorious truth. First, brothers and sisters, herald the self-authenticating truth of the scriptures in a speak-your-truth world. We live in a century, unlike almost any other in history, in which people are playing games with truth, playing games about who Jesus is. Everything in our age screams, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is what's true for me. It's all relative. This is epitomized. In years ago, 2008, Oprah Winfrey gave her infamous Speak Your Truth speech at the Golden Glows, where she passionately put forward one of the most widely received statements of relativism and truth. She said, quote, What I know for sure, interesting, she knows something for sure. What I know for sure is that speaking your truth, speaking your truth, is the most important tool we have. And there in those three little words, speak your truth. One of our culture's most celebrated personalities has popularized relativistic understandings of truth to hundreds of millions in ways that postmodern philosophers could have only dreamed of. But let me ask you, is Speak your truth, enlightening. Comes out of the enlightenment. Is it enlightening? Several years ago, I was living in Washington, D.C., and a massive storm came through, leaving 6,000 people compact in my little local community without power for three whole days. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen. Because trees had fallen, on many people's power lines and homes through all hours. Even at night, people were trying to clear away the wreckage. You go out at night and you would notice two remarkable things. First, you would notice that it was incredibly dark. Never seen anything like this in a local community. It was incredibly dark. The second thing you would notice is that Everyone was walking around with their little flashlights, huddled in their little flashlights. And you, and you could see it from blocks away because it was so dark. You could see all of these little flashlights 
walking around. And to tell you the truth, it was so dark, the flashlights didn't really do that much good. You could still barely see. And I'll never remember mornings quite like those next three glorious mornings when after an evening of darkness, the sun came up. The sun came up. Everyone put away their flashlights and basked in the glorious sunrise as they felt the sunshine on their face. Our our culture tells us the only way we can navigate the, the abyss, the darkness of all the truth claims out there, the best they can do is, you got your little flashlight? I got my little flashlight. Leave one another alone. We have to call people, to beckon people, to smash these little flashlights and exchange it for the sunrise of God's word. To tell them the light of the world has come and he has revealed himself in his word. There's a quote that hangs on my wall in my office that I repeat almost every time I'm on an airplane or having a conversation with someone and they ask me, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe all of this? And I pull out that quote by C.S. Lewis, hangs on the wall, it says, where he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun. The sun has risen, not only because I see it, But because of it, I see all things. Jesus and his word is the light of the world. The only way we see anything is through the truthfulness of his word. And yet, because of his word, as we dig into it, it applies to everything. Dear brother and sister, let this cause you to do Two things. First, bask your soul in the sunrise of a God-defined, God-entrenched worldview. This isn't about winning the worldview conversation with a postmodern culture. This is about soul basking. It's about seeing and savoring God's word and seeing how it defines and applies to everything. This is about saying, I know what life means. I know why I exist. I know why I was created. I don't have to wonder. I can see. I don't have to walk around in the dark. I see everything clearly. Light has come. Let there be nowhere that the light of God's word does not shine in your life, where it is not determinative, in your marriage, in your financial priorities, how you raise children, why you're in seminary and studying, how you deal with failure. Let it all shine with enlightening authority. And secondly, when you preach and when you pastor, bathe your people in the God-defined, God-entrenched worldview of the Word. Show them how the Word defines and applies to 
everything. That there's nowhere that the word of God does not shine. Show them that it's the only place that life is found in following Christ. That's next sermon. But show them that's where life is found. John Owen says the world is filled with so many lifeless, sapless, graceless, artificial declarations of divine truth that we may sooner squeeze water out of a pumice stone than one drop of spiritual nourishment out of them. By contrast, how many millions of souls have received divine light and consolation suited unto their condition? Say with the Puritans, happiness is holiness, obedience to God's word, and holiness is happiness. Second challenge, herald the self-authenticating authority of the scriptures over all other authorities. If somebody asked you, how do you know that the scriptures are the word of God? How would you answer them? One of the most self-suicidal answers that exists in the evangelical church is that the church, the way we know that the word of God is the word of God, is that the church established four criteria for what would be scriptures, and then chose which books of the Bible or scripture on the basis of that criteria. They would say, every single book of the New Testament needs to be apostolic, that is written or sponsored by an apostle, orthodox, consistent with the apostolic teaching and the rest of scripture, universally accepted by the local church and inspired, giving some internal sense of divine inspiration. Maybe you say, well, what's wrong with that? Um, what's wrong with that? Sit at the feet of John Calvin and see if you hear what is so suicidal about that approach. He said, a most pernicious error widely prevails that scripture has only so much weight as is conceded to it by the consent of the church. As if the eternal truth of God depended upon the decision of men. There's an exclamation mark at the end of that. What else can there be, Calvin, but the decisions of men to which he answers the self-authenticating authority of the scriptures. And same thing is in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1. The internal testimony of the Holy Spirit bearing witness in the heart of the believer that it is the word of God. Calvin says the self-authenticating nature of scripture is as, is as like, quote, white and black things do of their color, sweet and bitter things do of their taste. You hear what he's saying? There's no prior inference. You don't infer sight. You don't infer taste. You either see it, you either taste it, or there's nothing. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, he did so by no prior inference at all. He simply heard Jesus speak and was raised from the dead. 
Of course, although Scripture is our fundamental starting place, historical testimony confirms this. But this isn't ultimately about having your worldview ducks in a row. It's about deliverance. Deliverance from the darkness of sin and unbelief. It's about deliverance from lies and the father of lies and perhaps the greatest lie of it all, that you are your own authority. Can you say when you read the scripture, what Augustine said in his confessions, that something internally cried within him, that it was true. Within me, he said, within the chamber of my meditation, truth speaks. Not in Hebrew or in Greek or Latin or with any outlandish speaks, speech without lips, without vocal organs, without sounds of syllables. The word speaks true. I hope your heart sings when you read God's word because you say, I see Jesus. I see him clearly. And oh, how I long to see him more. Come, Lord Jesus, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you speak through your word. You are the light of the world who enlightens our hearts. Apply this word to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.